If you do have a Bible with you, I think it's good if you do have a Bible with you. I know we have the words up top, but uh, I, like, I love to hear the fingers and the pages, so, and I think it's good for us to use our Bibles. But if you can't, or if it's better for the screen, fine. But we're in Zechariah chapter 9. A lot of us don't know where that is, but look in your index if you're new to the Bible, and you'll find it. It's near the end of the Old Testament. And then um, we'll also be in Matthew 21 and Luke 19. Uh, not the whole sections of Scripture there, but this, that's kind of where we'll spend most of our time. And uh, Father, we just do thank you for the opportunity to be in your word this morning because um, this is Holy Week. It's Passion Week. It's, we're all, I, I just sense that we're all kind of on spiritual pins and needles this morning because we get to dive into the most profound event in all of human history, and that is what Jesus did. And so, Lord, I, I pray that you keep, help our attention to be focused on this next week and what we're going to talk about today. And like someone said earlier, that, um, that you would change us before we leave today. For your glory and our blessing, we ask it in Jesus' name, Lord. Amen. Well, a little boy was sick, sick on Palm Sunday, and he stayed home from church with his mother his father returned from church holding a palm branch. And the little boy was curious and asked, why do you have that palm branch, Dad? You see, when Jesus came into town, everyone waved palm branches to honor him, and so we got palm branches today. The little boy replied, oh, shucks. The one Sunday I miss is the Sunday that Jesus shows up. <laughs> I don't want to miss Jesus today. I really don't. I don't want to miss him. I don't want to skip by him, you know. But the tendency during Holy Week is to skip by Jesus on Palm Sunday. I was thinking about that in the car on the way down this morning. There were some years this, that I did not preach a Palm Sunday message on Palm Sunday. And I've, I've preached on Palm Sunday many times, but there were some years, I should say, that I didn't preach on Palm Sunday. And now I look back and think, how could I not have ever not preached on Palm Sunday seven days before, or six days before uh, a Good Friday and Easter? But today I'm going to go to a Palm Sunday message. We'll get back in the book of Hebrews after Easter. Uh, because, um, the, I, like I said, the tendency is to rush through to get to, to get to Good Friday service and then Easter and I don't want to do that because uh, even though Good Friday and Easter talk about Christ's suffering and his death on the cross and being buried for three days and then rising from, the death, from death and the grave and ascending to the right hand of the Father is so awesome. Palm Sunday has a lot to offer us. It really, really does. It was the beginning of the end of Jesus' work on earth, which makes it profound. It was the prelude to the passion of Christ to Holy Week. It was when Jesus was officially recognized as Messiah, the King, when he entered Jerusalem. And it's named Palm Sunday for you newbies that maybe don't know what it's all about because when people, Jesus entered Jerusalem, people threw palm branches on the ground and waved palm branches in the air in anticipation of his coming into the city. And so what I'm going to talk about today is this. Important facts everyone should know about Palm Sunday. You know, Every time you read the Bible, even the same passages over and over again, you can discover new things, can't you? The Holy Spirit can give us something new over and over and over again 
when we feel like we've plumbed the depths of a passage already. And he's given me some new things today, some old things, but some new things. So I'm kind of excited to share this message to you this morning. So important facts everyone should know about Palm Sunday. First of all, Palm Sunday started with a prophecy. It started with a prophecy. Not in the Gospel of Matthew 21 or Luke 19 or Mark 12 or, in jo- or John 12. I, don't, I think it was Mark 12 also. Not with those. It started 550 years before Jesus came to this earth with a prophecy, Zechariah 9.9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See your king coming to you, righteous and having salvation, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. 550 years before Christ even put his toe upon this earth, was born to Mary There's a prophecy that is so specific, it's hard to even believe, a messianic prophecy that Jesus was coming, riding into Jerusalem on a a foal, a a colt of a donkey, okay? And I thought I'd share with you the probabilities of that. It doesn't really have to do with the exact passage, but it's just interesting. The probability of the Old Testament prophecies of Jesus being fulfilled in one man. Now, check this out. I'm reading something somebody wrote, but I wanted to just share it with you. Yes, one could possibly find one or two prophecies fulfilled in other men, but not all 61 major prophecies of the Messiah coming to this earth. In fact, the chance of one man fulfilling even eight prophecies, messianic prophecies of Jesus, is one in 10 to the 17th power which means absolutely nothing to me. I don't understand that. Just that there's a lot of zeros, right? I cried my way through math, okay? So, um, in fact, when I went to the college administration office when I was going to college, you know how I picked my major? I went to the administration, I said, what majors do not require any math? That's how bad at math I was. They lied to me, and I had to take some math, but uh, I got through. Okay. One in 10 to the 17th power is 100,000,000 That's the odds that even eight of those over 330 prophecies of Jesus would be fulfilled. Now, if you don't get that, I looked it up this morning just because I was... That means the odds of even eight messianic prophecies, mentioned, like Zechariah 9.9 mentioned in the uh, Bible, are, that are fulfilled about Jesus... Are, is 100 quadrillion. So that, that clears it up for you, doesn't it, right there? 100 quadrillion. Anyway, uh, this has been illustrated by imagining placing 100 quadrillion silver dollars on the state of Texas, which would result in a two-feet sea of silver dollars wherever you went. Now, this is where it gets interesting. Mark one of the silver dollars distinctively and throw it into the state. Stir it up and blindfold a man who has one pick to select the marked coin. That's the odds against anyone fulfilling only eight prophecies, messianic prophecies, much less what authorities, most authorities feel is something like 350 plus Old Testament prophecies in some way fulfilled in the Messiah. To phrase it another way, these incredible odds just illustrate are the same chance that the Old Testament prophets 
would have had of writing eight prophecies and having them all come true in any one man, providing they wrote them in their own wisdom. One can conclude that the fulfillment of even just eight prophecies of messianic arrival, Jesus' arrival, one in eight prophecies, or eight prophecies, proves to be that God inspired the writing of these prophecies to a definiteness which lacks only one chance in 10 to the 17th power. The odds against all 330 plus Old Testament prophecies being fulfilled in one man cannot even be reasonably illustrated. They are so high. Wow. That's how it started. That's how uh, Palm Sunday started with this astronomically thin chance or that all of these prophecies could be filled, fulfilled in one man. But it happened. Now, the context of this, if you go down to the historical context that I read in, in Zechariah, the background is, in the scriptures, is the Babylonian exile. Okay? The Babylonian exile, which started in 587 B.C., when Babylonia destroyed Jerusalem, forced the Jewish people into exile for how many years? Seventy years. In 538, after Babylon fell to Cyrus of Persia, Cyrus issued an edict, made it possible for the exiles to return to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. Nehemiah and Ezra is an account of that. And some did in 520 B.C. Their leaders entered with joy and the blessing of God. That's the historical background. Every important detail of the triumphal entry is here in Zechariah 9.9, and we'll come back to it later. But if we read the gospel accounts, we're given more detail. So I want to read just one. It's in all four gospels. Let's read Matthew's account in chapter 21. Start at verse 1. Matthew chapter 21, verse 1. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. And if anyone says anything to you, tell him that the Lord needs them, and he will take them right away. I want you to try that <laughs> at a car lot, or the Lord told me to take this, and then um, you can use me to, you can use your one phone call and call me about it, okay, when you're in jail. But, uh, this took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. See to the daughter of Zion. See your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So it's repeating Zechariah 9.9. The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them, and they brought the donkey and the colt, placed their cloaks on them, and Jesus sat on them. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and while others cut branches from the trees, they spread them on the road. And the crowds that went ahead of him and and... Uh, those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, who is this? The crowds answered, this is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. Now, this, this took place very close to after Jesus rode into the city in the triumphal entry. He entered the temple area, drove out all who were buying and selling there, and he overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. It is written that my, he said to them, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. How to win friends and influence people. The blind and the lame came to him at the temple and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the teachers of the law saw wonderful things, the wonderful things he did, 
and the children shouting in the temple area, Hosanna to the son of David. They were indignant. Do you hear what these children are saying? They asked him. Yes, Jesus replied. Have you never read from the lips of children and infants you have ordained praise? So you have the wider, broader picture of Palm Sunday, but it's all condensed in Zechariah 9.9, which we'll see here momentarily. And so um, what is one of the most important facts about Palm Sunday? Just remember this. It was prophesied 550 years ago in detail in the book of Zechariah before Jesus ever even came to this earth. It's the fulfillment of a messianic prophecy, of which there are about 333. 61 major ones, and even if eight, it was only eight of those that were fulfilled, the odds would be, can't remember exactly, 100 quadrillion. Secondly, I want to go to a second essential fact here. Second essential fact, not only was Palm Sunday started with a prophecy, but Palm Sunday, or the triumphal entry, as it's often called, was perfectly timed. It was perfectly timed. It was not random or chaotic or by chance. It was perfectly timed. And I I don't know if you've heard about a guy by the name of uh, Ray Steadman. He's one of my favorite guys. He's he's gone to be with the Lord a number of years ago, but he pastored down in North... Well, wherever Palo Alto is. Is that southern? Huh? California. Well, I know it's in California, but is that southern, middle, or north? Okay, never mind. (laughs) I can't hear everybody at once. It's in the the great state of California. Anyway, and he wrote this about, um, about Palm Sunday, about another prophecy that makes it so specific. It's kind of scary. Here's what he said. In the book of Daniel chapter 9, we read a prophecy about 70 weeks of years. 70 weeks of years. It is generally understood that the prophecy talks about a special 490 years of Jewish history, which would begin to run its course when the command was given to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem following the Babylonian captivity. When 483 of those years had elapsed, Daniel predicted Messiah the Prince would then be presented to his people. Two very interesting books by Sir Robert Anderson called Messiah the Prince and Daniel and the Prophet trace the fulfillment of this prophecy, pointing out that on the very day when Jesus rode into Jerusalem, 483 years had elapsed from the time of the issuing of the commandment to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. Wow. Wow, God is so precise. He times things perfectly. He times things perfectly. And um, before I get to a couple other points here, and I want to, you know, sometimes, sometimes extended applications are good. And so this is what I want to say, because I need to hear myself say it to me as well as you. God's timing your life perfectly. You may think, well, it seems kind of like a, it seems like one of those, when I've seen the lottery and they have all the ping pong balls and the guys turn in the crank and it's all jumbled and they're, run, they're bouncing all over. Have you ever seen that? Oh you, oh, you play the lottery, do you? Okay. No, not really. But you've seen that thing and you say, that's my life. Did you know that God is timing your life perfectly and mine to experience what we're experiencing and to, to grow us? mature us you say well it just seems so chaotic 
Well, it's not. It's perfectly timed. And I just, I wanted to say that because some of you come in here going, what in the world is going on with me? Oh, what God intended to go on with you so that you'll trust in him and he can do a work of uh, miracle work in your life and be glorified and you be blessed as you trust him. Anyway, it was perfectly timed. And it was perfectly timed according to the Lord Jesus. And I think that when he told the disciples, go down town and you'll see a, 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 a colt, a foal of a donkey, and then untie it and bring it to me, there's something supernatural going on there. He knew exactly what was happening and when it was happening. Okay. One put it this way. Je- one person put it this way. Jesus was in complete control of the circumstances around him. He wasn't going to the cross as a victim, but as a victor. And everything was going according to a divine plan and time out of his love for us. I want you to think about something. Think about how many times people tried to make Jesus king before his time. How about the wedding at Cana? And they ran out of the, the wine and, and they got all freaked out and they told Mary and she says, I'll, I'll talk to Jesus. And Mary said, you know, they ran out of wine and said, what are you coming to me? My time has not come yet. Wasn't time. And how about the time after Jesus fed the 5,000 in John chapter 6? And they ate, and uh, they, well, they really enjoyed having unlimited bread, and who wouldn't, you know? And uh, they enjoyed seeing Jesus do miracles and this, that, and the other thing. And they tried to make him king, and it says it was not his time yet. And then think about his brothers. Boy, they were acting like brothers, too. Uh, oh, so you're the king. Well, uh, <clears throat> why don't you go down to the feast and do your stuff and show the crowd that you're really who you say you are? Wink, wink, nod, nod. And Jesus said, it's not my time yet. But now, it's time. It's time. In John 12, 23, the, another, uh, uh, Part, another gospel that records the triumphal entry, he says, yes, the hour has now come. That is one of the, an important thing about, good, uh, about uh, Palm Sunday, especially as we go into Good Friday and Easter. These things were perfectly timed by God. He wasn't a victim. He was a victor, okay? He says, I'm going to set the time of my death so that I can die at the same time as other lambs do on the Passover, except I'm the Lamb of God, and I'm in complete control. And so the central fact about Palm Sunday today is it was prophesied, and it was perfectly timed. But I think it's also good to see that uh, Palm Sunday was packed with emotion, but not confusion. Packed with emotion. Everybody was on an emotional plane of some kind during Palm Sunday. And sometimes I think, you know, uh, that... um, that we don't think emotion is good. Emotion is very good. It's just not letting it, our flesh uh, be ruled by our emotions. But sometimes I think, you know, Christians have been baptized in lemon juice, not in water, you know. And they just, it's not, you know, I have to be really serious and kind of half, uh, you know, just not smile. I might crack my face or something. And, and no, God says you can experience emotion Emotion's not confusion unless it's get, the flesh gets a hold of it. Okay, and the large crowd was very, very emotional. 
Hosanna, they said. Save us. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And there was excitement and celebration and joy and happiness. Peace in heaven. Glory to the highest. The crowd joyfully praised God with, and this is what I think is kind of cool for me, is that the, the word shouted is mentioned twice. They were shouting. They were shouting with loud voices when Jesus came into uh, Jerusalem. That's what I call emotion. Not confusion, but emotion. Now, Jesus had emotions too, but his were in the opposite direction. Okay? So, you see, it's okay for me to shout and praise God and, 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 and be joyful and happy. Well, you bet. We don't have to reserve that. This is a Swedish Baptist church. And, uh, well, it was. Is there any Swedes here today? Anybody left? Not a single one. When I first came here, there were people that spoke Swedish. Get that. When the, first, the church that Deb and I went to in Portland, they at one time had a Swedish-speaking service. And do you ever see pictures of those old Swedes and Norwegians? <laughs> see if I can do it. <laughs> I have to wipe the smile off my face. Uh, you see, anybody see those old pictures? I mean, they're one to smile there. And, and you know, it's okay to be somber, and, it, and we should be somber when we're singing songs. Next Friday night, we, there are going to be some somber songs. Not all of them, but there'll be some so, so, somber songs. Jesus was, was, was somber. He was very confrontative, by the way. Nothing wrong with confrontation as long as it's done in the power of the Spirit. Chapter 19 of Luke, in his version, if you go over to Luke 19, uh, let's look how, and see what Jesus was all about. He was confrontative. 1939 and 40, some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. I'll explain what that means uh, in a moment. No, I'll explain it now. It's a, what that means is, you can't suppress praise for me in my coming to earth, no matter what you do. You can't suppress praise for, for me. <sighs> they knew what that meant, by the way. They go, what did Jesus mean by that? What Jesus meant was, is that praise to me is good, because I'm God. And then Jesus was sad. Look at 941, or 1941, excuse me, in Luke. As he approached Jerusalem, he saw the city and he wept over it and said, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace. But now it's hidden from your eyes. The days will come when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground. You and your, the children without your, uh, within your stone walls they will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. Greg Laurie uh, summarizes this well. He says, as Jesus entered the city, Jesus was weeping. Being God, he knew the future, and he knew that, for the most part, the Jews wouldn't believe, and that grieved him, and that Jerusalem would face utter destruction in 40 years, and it happened in 70 A.D., Titus and the Roman legions would march into Jerusalem and slaughter more than 600,000 Jews. Their beloved temple would be burned to the ground and be dismantled stone by stone, exactly fulfilling Jesus' prophecy of that day. So he was confronted, and he was, he, was, he was crying. He was grieved. And then he was angry. He was angry. If you look at verse 45 of Luke 19, 
Uh, and this ha- according to Matthew and Luke, this happened right after he entered the close to when a- after he entered the city. I'm not sure about Mark and John, but according to Luke, Matthew and Luke, it did. And it says, then he entered the temple area and began driving out those who were selling. It is written, he said to them, my house will be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. Whoo-wee. You know, Jesus, um, what he was saying there, by the way, was that they were cheating people and making it hard for people to go into the temple and worship during the Passover. And they cheated them in two ways. Like, Farmer Mitch would take his goat or whatever animal was to be sacrificed to these people to get in or to get, make a sacrifice for Passover. But, and he, I would take the best of my flock, the spotless, the most spotless one. But when they saw it, they said, oh, no, no, not perfect enough. You got to buy one of ours. Well, have, being wanting to make sacrifice, they were, had, their kinda, had their arm behind their back, and so they would buy one, but they would sell it at inflated prices. And then, not only that, but they had a special currency that you had to use called the temple currency. And so they would bring their dollar bills and they said, oh no, we don't take your currency. Go to the exchange booth. And when they exchanged their currency for the temple currency, they were charged an exorbitant exchange rate for their money. And Jesus says, you're, you're, this is, you're, you're cheating and robbing people. And they want to worship. And if goodness knows... Help, if you were uh, not a Jew, good luck. You, out, you, stay, you stay out there. And so Jesus was so mad because they were keeping... In fact, the funny thing is, in Matthew's version, I don't, I don't know if... I didn't put this up there, but in Matthew's version, I heard a guy preach on this once, when Jesus scattered the, te- uh, the, the tables and the money flew all over the place and he ripped everything down... It says, the, the moment that happened, and this is uh, Matthew 21, 14, I don't think we got that far. The blind and the lame came to him at the temple and he healed them. Once it was cleared of corruption, all the blind and lame and the down and outers and even the up and outers and all the outers were free to come in. Isn't that a beautiful picture? He cleansed it, the hurting came in. That's what I envisioned the church to be like. What a beautiful picture. But he was mad. And then the religious leaders were mad. They hated Jesus so much. They were so indignant and so jealous of him and, and hated him because the common people and the sinners, one version said they hung on his every word. You got to love that. And they said, you know, our influence is really being taken away. And then in one of the versions it says they tried to find a way to kill him. And Luke Okay, so there were some powerful emotions at, um, at uh, triumphal entry, but not, not uh, confusion, but emotion. You can have emotion without confusion. Let's go on. Uh, that gives us to the fourth essential fact about Palm Sunday. It was prophesied hundreds of years ago. It was perfectly timed. It was packed with emotion. And Palm Sunday as I talked to you about Zechariah 9.9, was proof positive of the deity of Christ. Palm Sunday proved the deity of Christ as much as any other event in, um, in the Bible. And we go back to Zechariah 9.9 for that. It's just packed into this one little verse. 
in Zechariah 9.9, this prophecy, is, are some very interesting words that express the deity of Christ. The first one back in Zechariah 9.9 is, uh, it, it uh, titles Jesus or the, mess, the Messiah as king. The king's coming to you. This was the Messiah that was meant by this word. The Messiah, the Son of God. And by the way, both Jewish scholars, Orthodox Jewish scholars and Christians believe that this prophecy is about the Messiah. Um, except unbelieving Jewish people believe that it hasn't happened yet. And we believe it has. Okay? And so he's the king. And it also says righteous. And, you know, you, get, you pull the floorboards up and you look underneath these words and they're amazing. Righteous means straight or morally right. Someone who always does the right thing. Always. Can you imagine that? Always doing what's right. There's only one person that did that, and that's the infinitely pure, holy Jesus who never sinned. Jesus is the standard for what is perfect and right. And then it says having salvation. Having salvation. That's the idea of being the Savior, not coming into the city uh, just to ride in, but with a purpose of saving humankind from their sins. Okay? And Jesus saves us because of his substitutionary atoning death on the cross. And on that cross, he provided us the means to be connected with God and to be saved from our sins and from eternal damnation into eternal life. Man, I was listening. It's kind of funny because I was, I, I mean, it must have been Tuesday. I turned the radio on because I was coming into staff meeting and uh, usually around 9 or 10 o'clock are some really good preachers. And one of them was David Jeremiah. I really like that guy. I'm jealous of him and uh, how, these, how prolific these guys are, you know. But anyway, he was talking about what we'll be like in heaven, our resurrection bodies. And I was just drinking it up, you know, driving kind of extra slow so I could get to the end of the message before I got here. And so then at, I stayed late that night studying. I think I got about, what was it, 6 or 6.30 and finally called Debbie and I said, I'm coming home. And, and I turned on the radio, same sermon. Perfect timing. So I got to listen to it again. And I want to tell you, eternal life with Jesus in heaven in our resurrection bodies sounds so much better than eternal damnation in hell and the suffering that that brings us or the person that's there sounds so much better you know for and he was talking about what our bodies will be like and not having to exercise and not not having to worry about what we eat and just all of the supernatural stuff and uh i wish that i could repeat his message for you next Sunday, but that would be called plagiarism, so I can't do that. But um, that's what Jesus came to do, to take us to heaven, okay? He's the Savior from our sins. That's what it means in Greek, Jesus, Savior, okay? He was the Savior that brought the Lord's salvation to us through the cross. And that's a proof of his deity. He's the Savior. He's the King, He's righteous, he has salvation, only God has salvation, 
And then it says, gentle and riding on a donkey, on the coat, colt, the foal of a donkey. Now, this is why I say, well, you never learn all that you're going to learn by reading the Bible. And, and in fact, it's, there's just so much there. And, but I learned something new because I was reading, uh, I don't even know who I was reading, but that Jesus was riding on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And, I, and the question comes up, well, why didn't he ride on the donkey? The donkey. The donkey would have been used to having people on it, but not the colt, colt not the foal. And the reason is that um, the donkey would have been broken. But the coat, I'm going to say coat, the coat and the foal, or, or the foal, was not broken. But who did Jesus choose to sit on? The one that wasn't broken. The one that should have bucked and jumped and kicked until Jesus got thrown off. I remember this, this is kind of funny, when we lived up on 48th and <laughs> Debbie knows the story I'm going to tell right now. And so we were, on our left, as you go up 48th, there was a guy that had horses. And I, I, I'm sure many of them were not broken. They'd run around and kick and and so one time, Debbie and I and, and our three boys were walking on the road, and I heard one of the boys tell one of the other boys, you know, you should go ride one of those horses. <laughs> just, just climb the fence and, yeah, ride one of those horses. And so he, he did. And, he, <laughs> and he, he climbed the fence and walked over to the horse. I don't know how he got up on the horse. I can't remember, but he got up on the horse, and the next thing you know, you know, Trigger was kicking and bucking and, and, and jumping, and my son went about 10 feet in the air and landed on his posterior region in a pile of dirt. He got up, brushed himself off. He wasn't hurt, thank goodness, and walked out. That's what should have happened to the Lord, but, but it didn't. Why didn't that happen? Because Jesus created it. He was God, is God. He created it. I mean, if you go back to Mark 11, 2, don't do it. Mark 11, 2, Jesus described the colt as one that no one had ever ridden. There's good reason for that. But he, as the creator of all things, had control. And that colt, that foal, knew that that was Jesus. Don't ask me how. And, uh, and just was as passive and submissive and gentle as it could be because uh, the colt knew that it was God riding him. In some way, don't, I can't, you know, and he submitted to him. It's interesting that, that a colt, a foal of a donkey would submit to Jesus much better than a lot of us. We're more stubborn than a donkey sometimes, you know. That's deity. Now, one more. Jesus identified himself as Lord. He told his disciples, go get that colt, that foal of a donkey, and if anyone asks you who uh, wants it, tell them who wants it. The Lord. Now, if you could, could you imagine if any of us said that? The next thing that would pull up would be an ambulance with five big guys in a straitjacket taking us to the padded room, you know? Jesus identified himself as Lord, and he never apologized for that, okay? 
And he was also human. I mean, it was, yes, proved his deity, but it proved his humanity too. Humbly riding on a colt. It's translated humble, gentle, lowly riding on a colt. If that was a worldly king, he would have come in with a big war horse with all kinds of armor on the horse and, and, and a golden chariot with all kinds of valuable decorations on it and showing how full of power and glory and victory they were, but Jesus was on a full, a colt of a donkey, humble. And he came to everyone, the up-and-outers and the down-and-outers, the lowly members of society. He had, Jesus didn't have a position, a title, or possessions. He came in to suffer and be nailed to the cross for our sins. But he remained God in human flesh. And that is an important fact of the uh, triumphal entry. I mean, if, if you can just imagine it in your minds, it's just kind of scary, really. God riding into my town on a colt. God in human flesh. It makes you kind of almost choke up how great it is. Okay? By the way, the next time Jesus rides in, it's going to be different. Okay, and I want to I want to read to you how different it'll be the next time he comes in. Revelation chapter 11, excuse me, chapter 19. And I saw, John writes, heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. And with justice he judges and makes war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. And he has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood. And his name is the word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. And out of his mouth came a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So he, he won't be coming in humble on a colt. That's how he'll be coming in. And by the way, we'll be riding with him. That's us, by the way. You know, I'm not, I haven't ridden a horse very many times. I'm not good at it, as you can possibly imagine. And, uh, but we'll be riding. We'll be riding those white horses. Whew, kind of fun when you think about it. So that's an essential fact about Palm Sunday. It was prophesied miraculously. It was perfectly timed. It was packed with emotion, not confusion. It was proof positive of his deity. And Palm Sunday shows that God loves it. This is our number five. Palm Sunday shows that God loves it when we praise him. Did you notice that Jesus never told them to stop it? You know, he never said, stop praying. That's, that's not good. You shouldn't praise me. Okay? Now, putting aside how many in the crowd were sincere and how many were insincere, okay, this is how God wants us to worship. You know? This is how the Lord wants us to worship, with passion, with sincerity, with enthusiasm. Not coming in on a Sunday morning, you know, and just... Uh, um, crown him with many crowns, the Lamb of 
If I would have had my phone here, I would have took it out, but I don't have my phone. No, he wants us to, he wants us to be filled with passion and worship. I mean, doesn't Jesus kind of deserve that? I mean, if we saw him right now, what would we do? Oh, my. Well, I know what I would do. I'd fall on the, right there on the concrete on my face. But we would praise him with reckless abandon. I mean, the meaning of Hosanna here means say, you're saving us or deliver us, save now. They were waving palm branches, which were tokens of joy and triumph used on festive occasions. They were shouting. They were enthusiastic. They were expressive. And again, putting aside what the motives were of some and others in this crowd, this is such a picture of what should go on every Sunday morning. By the way, if you're preparing for Sunday morning on Sunday morning, you probably won't get as much out of it. I ha- for me, what I've tried to do is about Thursday, Friday, I say, Lord, just help me to hear the words, see the words, sing the words. Help me not to think about what I'm doing Sunday afternoon or evening. Help me not to think about what Debbie's making for dinner. Help me not to think about my week is so busy. You know how you can drift into those kinds of weird things? Help me to focus on the words up there and to sing them out and to get the meaning into my spirit. Help me to do that because I don't do that on my own. I, I am the wanderer. Remember that old song, The Wanderer? They call me the wanderer, the wanderer. I wander. And I need God's help to... Uh, enthusiastically, expressively worship him, there's the model right there. And you say, well, I am reserved. I have a reserve. That's okay. Do the best you can. And it doesn't mean we all raise our hands. And it doesn't mean we all, you know, are the same type of expression. Sometimes my hands are down and my eyes are closed because that's the way I want to express it at that moment in time. But we got to be careful not to be worshiped dead but worship live. And then um, I think, uh, let's see, number six. There are seven, by the way, if you're counting. Number six, Palm Sunday forced the whole world into a predicament. The whole world. But that was Jerusalem. That wasn't the whole world, but it did. It forced the whole world into a predicament, and here's the predicament. Either we try to use Jesus and then eventually turn away when he doesn't come through for us like we liked him to, or we let Jesus use us and we stay with him come heck or high water. Either we try to use Jesus or we let Jesus use us. And that's what the crowd was all about. Okay? Once most of the crowd knew they weren't going to get what they wanted from Jesus, very, very soon, instead of all the hosannas and all that, they said, crucify him, crucify him, okay? They weren't interested in a king who came to set up a kingdom in their hearts. They were interested in the king who was going to set up a kingdom in Jerusalem. They not only did not want to be under the authority of Rome, they didn't want to be under the authority of God's son. And so they possessed a casual, not a committed faith in Christ on the inside. And we've got to be careful about that because there are many people in the church who are seeking to use Jesus 
for health and wealth and uh, not going through any super big trials. And when Jesus doesn't work for them according to their way he should, then, they, then they're going to be gone. They're going to boogie. They're going to leave. They're going to bail. They're going to they're split. Vast amounts of people are going to do that. Sometimes I see auditoriums with thousands and thousands of people getting the soft, if any, gospel. All the prosperity, though. And I wonder when the bottom drops out and the walls come in and the ceiling drops on our world, are they still going to be on a fire for Christ or not? And Jesus is dividing these people. He's saying, you are either trying to use me or you're going to let me use you and have a true faith, okay? People that love Jesus want Jesus to use them. I want Jesus to use me. You want Jesus to use me, but there are people that want to use Jesus. I mean, they have religion, but they don't have Jesus. They praise him for the miracles and the bread and the healings or the finances that these people promise them or to be personally blessed Okay, or to be delivered from the Romans in the case of these people here. But when Jesus was arrested and mistreated and tortured and crucified, they abandoned him because they didn't, he didn't turn out to be the gravy train they thought he would be. And I, I look at many modern Christians, and I, Christians, that when they're told to submit to Jesus and be all in, regardless of circumstances or persecution, they take the nearest exit. But there were sincere people too. They put their clothes on the ground, tore branches down, put palm branches, and showed respect and worship of Jesus the same way that the Israelites did for the kings in the Old Testament at times. And then the last one here, last important fact about Palm Sunday, because we don't want to be these people. Think in our minds, am I just here to use Jesus? Not that Jesus won't bless us and meet our needs, but or to let Jesus use me to do with my life what he wishes. And then the last one here, and I, this, I want to close with this one. Seventh important fact about Palm Sunday is God had a plan for Good Friday and for Passion Week, for Easter, and for the rest of our lives as well. God doesn't, didn't just have a plan to ride into Jerusalem, to be crucified for us, not as a victim, but as a victor, rise from the dead, three days later, from the grave, bodily from the grave. God not only had a plan for that, he has a plan for each of our lives. Each of our lives. Each of our lives. It didn't stop at, at Easter. It goes on through our lives until we go to be with him. A guy by the name of Bruce Gochi, it's a really tough name to pronounce, but somebody know what that name is? goat cheese, goat cheese, Bruce goat cheese. And, um, he, but he put it really well. He says, God has a plan. Listen to this really closely because I'm, I'm closing with this. I'm closing with this. God has a plan. God's plan did not end with the coming of Christ. This world in which we live is not running out of control. You say, you could have fooled me. But it's not. God is not surprised by what is taking place in our society today. 
God is not pleased with what is happening, but he is not caught off guard. The Bible is clear that there is coming a day when Jesus will return, and this time he will not come as a humble servant. He will return as the King of kings and Lord of lords. The decadence of our world does not surprise him. He told us it would come. God is not wringing his hands wondering what to do. He is in control. Practically, brother and sister in Christ, do you understand that things are not out of control in your life either? Do you understand that? Do you understand that God has a plan for you too? I know from personal experience that there are times when I see what is going on in and around my life and I wonder what God is trying to do. But I, re- am, I remind us of our text. In verse 16, this is Mark's version of, um, of Palm Sunday. It says, in verse 16 we read, at first his disciples did not understand all this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these things had been written about him and that they had done these things to him. On that day when Jesus walked towards Jerusalem, the disciples were unaware of what God was doing. They didn't say, oh, you know what? Oh, yeah, that's right. It's good because of the time thing in Daniel. It's good. For, it's it's, it's uh, uh, the triumphal entry. They didn't know that. They missed the significance of the day. Only later did they come and see the hand of God in all that was taking place. That may be true in your life as well. Friend, the fact that you don't understand what's going on in your life does not mean that God is not at work. He has promised that he would lead everyone who believes in him to do to, to that which is ultimately good. Our promise is that God knows what he is doing. You may not understand what he's doing in your life, but you can trust him for what he's doing in your life. In fact, God does not require you to understand. He just asks you to trust him. The one thing we do understand is that the Lord wants us to entrust ourselves to him. Are you willing to do so? Isn't that a good quote? That's good. Well, if you're here this morning in the size of this crowd, there may be one or two or more that are not truly born again. You've never truly given your life over to Christ. Here's the deal. For you unsaved people, in order to be saved, Jesus must make a triumphal entry into your heart. Okay? And I invite you today to think about that, to let him in, to not be stubborn or unbelieving like the crowd trying to use Jesus. Not just to have religion, but to have a relationship with Jesus. Recognize him for who he is, and don't be filled with your pride or your unbelief. Let him ride into your heart and give you salvation. Because there's coming a day when, as Philippians 2 says, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. And I'd like to do that on the right side of God, not on the left side. Because the worship's going to be real whether you know Christ or not. Okay? So believe on him while you can. And by the way, just as a cool, this is really cool. Do you know that that we'll be waving palm branches in heaven? You and I, as Christians? Revelation 7, 9, and 10. After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and in white robes and holding palm branches in their hands. 
And they cried out in a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne of the Lamb. I would want it if you, if you, that's the side I want to be on. Okay. We're going to be waving palm branches at the throne of God very soon. As Christians, prepare for that. Okay, and prepare for Good Friday this week. Come and worship. Hear the message of Good Friday. And then Easter, yeah. My favorite holiday. I'm even deliberating. I'm, I haven't decided about wearing a tie. Okay. <laughs> now, I haven't come to a conclusion, so if I don't, don't scold me, but... I'm so spoiled. Because when I first got here, it was suit and tie. Otherwise, the church police would come in and arrest you, okay? But prepare. Prepare ahead of time for this, okay? Don't let it be business as usual or allow yourself to be over-familiarized or under-familiarized with uh, Good Friday and Easter. Try to see it with fresh eyes. Read the four accounts of the cross and the resurrection in the scriptures. Pray ahead of time about how you're going to sing on Friday night and, and on Easter. Pray about what you're going to hear and have God and say, God, bring, oh, let me know it better than I've ever known it. Greet other people at Easter. There are going to be people that don't darken the door of a church any other time of the year. Okay, you might be the only person in a church they've ever been greeted by. Bring that into Sunday. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for. Um, giving us uh, the important facts about Good Friday. Um, and then as we go through the week and hit, uh, or I said, mean Palm Sunday, as we go through the week and hit Good Fr Friday, help us to just be in utter thanksgiving for your suffering, Jesus, that you felt everything that could possibly be felt and you bore our sin. And then three days after that, you rose physically, bodily from the grave and shattered death. And that we can be saved by trusting you in faith because then you'll join us to you in your resurrection. Thank you for uh, the kindness that you showed on us. And uh, give us a day where we just, uh, just enjoy hearing again what we've heard today from your word. Bless us as we eat today. Uh, Help it to be like the New Testament feasts when they would do this after church. And may everyone here that stays uh, um, feel like they've been with their family. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.